From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, October 12th. I'm Aaron Schachter. The European Union basks in the glow of the Nobel Peace Prize, but given the financial meltdown in Europe, reaction is definitely mixed. Frankly, to have been given this award at this moment in time will be greeted with derision. And later, remembering the Cuban Missile Crisis from the Soviet point of view. The Soviets were in love with the Cuban Revolution. It was really a love affair. Plus, why it's hard to cook like a celebrity Swedish chef and pass the popcorn, a rom-com from North Korea. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, producer of Nova. Explore the gap between the glamorous television world of CSI and the reality of the forensic crime lab. With few established scientific standards, no central oversight, and poor regulation. Nova's Forensics on Trial, Wednesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Europeans reacted with a mixture of pride and disbelief today at the news that the European Union, the whole thing, is the latest Nobel Peace Prize winner. The prize was awarded to the EU for its role in ensuring six decades of peace among its members. The world's Clark Boyd, who recently returned from a reporting stint in Brussels, has our story. Okay, forgive me. After two years of covering Europe's financial meltdown, I immediately went for the easy joke when I heard the Nobel announcement this morning. Well, I thought, the EU certainly wasn't in the running for the economics prize. Luckily, a highly regarded European statesman was on hand to wipe that smirk off my face. It's not the price in economics, it's the price of peace. Carl Bildt is Sweden's foreign minister. The European Union is the strongest the most significant instrument for peace and prosperity in our part of the world in our time. And uh, it is highly, highly uh, relevant to give it the price. That sentiment wasn't just echoed, but amplified by many of the EU's leading politicians today. Portugal's José Manuel Barroso, for example. Barroso's the president of the European Commission. It is justified recognition for a unique project that works for the benefit of its citizens and also for the benefit of the world. Typical high-minded stuff from Brussels. U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton sent her congratulations, praising the work of Europe's leaders. And those European heads of state also weighed in themselves. Here's German Chancellor Angela Merkel's reaction. Six decades of peace in Europe is a long time for those of us who live in the EU, Merkel said. Yet in history, it's the blink of an eye. And that, she said, is why we must never forget that in order to keep this peace, we have to work hard over and over. Of course, Merkel's having to work pretty hard these days to convince her own people that the EU is worth the financial pain. And last week, on a visit to troubled Greece, what she heard was anything but peaceful. 
Well, you only have to look at what happened last week in Athens when Angela Merkel turned up to be greeted by Molotov cocktails, violence and people dressed up in Nazi uniforms. Eurosceptics like Nigel Farage of the UK Independence Party pounced on today's Peace Prize announcement. This attempt to merge all these different countries in Europe, far from giving us peace and harmony, is beginning to divide Europe north to south and to make people strongly dislike each other. So I think, frankly, to have been given this award at this moment in time will be greeted with derision. And it wasn't just small parties in Euro-ambivalent Britain that seemed puzzled by today's announcement. Prime Minister David Cameron sidestepped all talk of the prize and kept silent. Others in Europe wondered, why not give the prize to someone fighting for human rights in Russia? Or how about a figure from the Arab Spring? Christian Harpkoven directs the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, which has nothing to do with the Nobel organization. Harpkoven says this year's award is different. Recently, the prize committee has made a point of saying it wants to look to the future. Whereas here, it actually reverts to a fundamentally historical justification for awarding the prize meaning the award has been made for past accomplishments, not future hopes. And then, Harpkevin says, you can't overlook the domestic politics at play here. It certainly is a controversial prize uh, in a Norwegian context, simply because uh, the whole issue of Norway's membership of the EU has been so controversial. And Norway, uh, as most would know, uh, hasn't, isn't a member of the EU and turned down the last offer in 1994 in, in a popular vote. As a journalist friend of mine in Brussels likes to say... Europe is still just a bunch of tribes who fundamentally don't trust each other, which is why they need the EU. But looking ahead to the award ceremony, who's going to collect the prize? Portugal's Barroso? Belgian Herman van Rompuy, president of the European Council? Or how about Martin Schultz, president of the European Parliament? And then there's the $1.2 million worth of prize money. On Twitter today, someone suggested simply handing it over to Greece. Not that it would make that much difference. An Irish friend of mine noted that if split evenly, the prize would equal about 15% of one euro cent for each EU citizen. Yeah, she quipped, I'll just wait for that to be deposited directly into my state-bailed-out bank account. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. In Pakistan today, the young girl who was shot in the head by the Taliban was moved to a military hospital in Rawalpindi. Doctors say the next 24 hours will be crucial for 14-year-old Malala Yousafzai. People throughout Pakistan have been holding prayer vigils for the young school activist now fighting for her life. The BBC's Ilyas Khan has been following Malala's story from Islamabad. You know, there is a feeling out here that the people who attacked her did not anticipate the kind of reaction that the Pakistani people have shown. There is an example. In 2009, we had this um, video which surfaced on the internet in which uh, the Taliban was shown flogging a girl in Swat. And we saw almost similar kind of anger across the country. And uh, that anger kind of galvanized public opinion for a military operation in Swat. And it actually happened. And, uh, you know, the military was able to clear SWAT within six months. The attack against Malala was also in the SWAT Valley, no? Yes, it was. So, yes. so do you foresee some other kind of action as a result of this attack? You know, the kind of reaction, especially which is coming from the politicians, even, you know, the leaders of the religious parties, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the military. So uh, there is a lot of speculation about um, some kind of an action in the offing. Malala became somewhat famous, I guess you could say notorious among some, when uh, a few years ago, as an 11-year-old, she wrote a diary for the BBC Urdu service 
with a blow-by-blow account of how her school in the Swat Valley dealt with the Taliban's 2009 edict to close girls' schools. And that was, as you say, before the government action there. I I wonder if you've gotten a chance in the last few years to meet her and what your impression was of the girl. Well, actually, I never had a chance to meet her as such. Many of our uh, colleagues met her. In fact, she was discovered by one of our uh, colleagues in BBC Urdu, and uh, that is how she ended up writing that diary for the BBC. She became quite a public figure after that. She's also incredibly uh, courageous, right? I mean, she's put herself out there as as, uh, someone writing against the Taliban, which apparently is why she was attacked. It's a very bold thing to do for an 11 or 14-year-old girl. It certainly is. And this is one reason why she she's adored by the Pakistanis, you know, right across the board. You know, I think her family was equally courageous, especially her father, who supported her, who actually allowed her to go to school at a time when the Taliban had banned girls education over there. And when they couldn't actually wear the school uniforms, they used to go to the school hiding their books you know, under their clothing. And Ilias, how widespread is the condemnation? Is this something that's happening all across the country today, or is it limited to the Islamabad, Peshawar, Swat Valley area? It's quite widespread. You know, television coverage in Pakistan is almost more than 80%. And the images of this 14-year-old girl lying in a hospital bed with a bullet in in her head is something which hasn't gone down well with the people at large. And that probably is why the Pakistani media, for the first time, has singularly focused on this case. Today is the third day, and it continues to be a top story. And, you know, Taliban have started dishing out uh, threats But these voices are few and far between, Mm -hmm. and there is a lot of condemnation of these voices as well on the Pakistani media. The BBC's Ilyas Khan from Islamabad, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. The mastermind of the 9-11 attacks is in court next week. Khawad Sheikh Mohammed and four others face a military hearing in Guantanamo Bay. The Obama administration had wanted to try Mohammed in federal court, but it was forced to reverse course. Now the detainees are back in military court, though officials say it's more legitimate than the military tribunals of the Bush years. The world's Arun Roth reports. Brigadier General Mark Martins is the lead prosecutor in the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed trial, but he also helped lead the task force that reformed the military commissions in 2009. He says there have been a number of important improvements since then, but one topped the list. The first and most important was the prohibition in black and white of the use of statements obtained as a result of cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment. That is true to a certain extent, but there are two giant loopholes that you can drive a truck through. Andrea Prasow is Senior Counterterrorism Counsel for Human Rights Watch. The first is the so-called derivative evidence not the direct evidence obtained by torture, but evidence one step removed that would be barred in a U.S. federal court is expressly permitted in the military commission. Prasow says the other big problem is the secrecy that pervades the terrorism cases at Guantanamo. While it's certain that, say, Kalachik Mohammed's statements from his waterboarding sessions won't be admissible, Prasow worries that the secrecy rules make it hard to trace just what information was obtained from torture. Once the new military commission rules were in place, the government sent so-called clean teams to get new statements from detainees like Mohammed. But defense lawyers will argue that any testimony obtained now is still tainted by the torture. Fruit from the poisoned tree, to use one description. 
In these new, more open proceedings, the defense lawyers may win that fight. But even with the most rigorous new rules, critics like Prasow say that military commissions, by their very nature, will never be seen as fair. You have a military judge, military jury pool, handpicked by the same person who chose the judges. It's just really ridiculous. The system is, is so clearly not independent. The reality is that military commissions in Guantanamo are perceived around the world as illegitimate. Lead prosecutor Martin says he's acutely aware of the need to establish the legitimacy of the proceedings for a wider public. Every day I'm trying to to fulfill the role of the public prosecutor, which is someone who is trying to to achieve justice, not just win at all costs. I'm trying to ensure the law is applied and adhered to, and that what comes out of the system is something we can all look at and say is justice. Gary Solis is a professor at Georgetown and an authority on law and warfare. He says the previous commissions and treatment of detainees have created an unbearable burden for the new courts. They are so hobbled by a history that they cannot, cannot work in a way which will be understood or appreciated outside of their courtroom. We may have come to a point where no one is happy with the military commissions, even those who thought that a federal trial wouldn't be tough enough. During his arraignment at Guantanamo in May... Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's behavior horrified and angered many Americans. He and his co-defendants disrupted the proceedings multiple times, laughing and smiling through it all. Gary Sola says the military judges are in an impossible position. They know that the world's eye is on them, and so they will allow KSM to make a circus of it, whereas up in federal court, I mean, (laughs) a couple of the judges that I'm familiar with there wouldn't put up with that stuff for a minute. Had Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's federal trial been allowed to proceed, he would almost certainly have been convicted by now and on federal death row. Instead, he is at the center of a long, drawn-out military commission that has become a forum for critics of his treatment to have their day in court and for Mohammed himself to air his grievances with America. For The World, I'm Arun Roth. Arun is heading to Guantanamo next week. He tweets at Arun Roth, A-R-U-N-R-A-T-H. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. The pop artist Peter Max was born in Germany in 1938. Two years later, his family fled the Nazis to a Chinese city. And for our geo-quiz today, instead of trying to stump you, we're just going to share a story. Thousands of Jews sought refuge in this city during World War II. Peter Max lived with his parents in a vibrant Jewish neighborhood there nicknamed Little Vienna. You may not know Peter Max's name, but you likely do know his colorful posters and album covers. Go ahead, look through your old records. These days, his artwork is shown in museums all over the world, including Shanghai, the answer to our quiz, and we're where Peter Max is right now, along with his daughter, Libra. He hasn't been back for more than 60 years. Hey, it's great to be with you. Here we are. I met all kinds of people. Shanghai is unbelievable. When I left it, there were all these rickshaws, uh-huh. and the people were all wearing you know, Chinese clothes, and all the buildings were small with tiles and so forth. Today... It's beyond, beyond, beyond Manhattan. Yeah. Skyscrapers in every direction. 
everybody is wearing, every single person we saw is wearing Western clothes. I, I just couldn't believe it. Can you even tell where, where the neighborhood you grew up in was? Yeah, we went there a little bit, but I, it's like I have a better memory of it than what I could see in real life because there were so many new buildings there. I couldn't. I knew it was the neighborhood, but I just couldn't see exactly where. And and it was a a Jewish ghetto or little Vienna at the time, right? Well, we lived there for about a year, and then my father became extremely successful. He owned about four or five retail stores, men's clothing stores, and actually, within a few years, the Chinese people started wearing Western clothes. I would like to think that he was the first one who brought it there, but maybe yes, maybe no. But we lived in a beautiful pagoda house that had, a, you know, maybe like a 10-acre garden. I understand also when you were there in Shanghai for 10 years, there was someone outside your family who played a special role in your life, and, and you're you're now searching for her. Can you tell yeah. us about that? Yeah, she was an, a nanny that when I was about three, she was maybe nine or eight. And so, you know, maybe now she's got to be in the 70s. And uh, there was an artist that used to have like a tripod on the street, and maybe a block from where my parents and I lived. So my mother asked him if he could come over maybe once or twice a week to teach her three-year-old son how to draw. The man said, no, I can't. I've got to be here. But I have a daughter that draws. So, you know, my mother expected like a 15, 18, 20-year-old woman to come over. And it's like nine-year-old girl shows up. Maybe she was 10, but I think she was like nine, 10. And every day she brought a stack of paper and we drew in it. And she said, only to draw nonsense not to make real drawings. It was just move the hand around and get like very familiar with every direction your hand wants to go, you know? And I still today, sometimes I draw just nonsense for for Mm. 15 minutes just to like, you know, kind of warm up. It's tremendous. It's the way how to learn how to draw, you know? And here you are, a world famous artist. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. And if I had seen her, it would have been very nice. I would have told her that, yeah, I'm I'm that little boy. So you have no idea whether she knows what became of that little boy? No, no, but uh, I'm, I'm going to probably hire somebody to look for her here in China, and I'm going to have to like go through all my old, old photographs if I, I can find them, if we can, maybe she can recognize herself, and so maybe, maybe it's there. Now, you are, of course, as an artist, best known by many as uh, the guy who did a lot of album covers especially back in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, when I came out of the scene, on the scene, psychedelic art was, was like the big thing. So, you know, I got involved in music, I got involved in doing magazine covers, and but then, you know, the art styles changed, and I changed with it, and uh, I got very, very popular, you know, winning awards every week, every two weeks. Well, I could say I'm a very lucky guy, you know? But mainly what I do every single day of my life, from back then till today, is I get to my studio, I can't wait, to open my paints, and I've got 72 colors in front of me. I got all these empty canvases, and I start painting. Any thoughts about painting something from Shanghai while you're there? God knows. I'm, I'm sure going to you know, come up with ideas now that I'm going to be back in New York in a couple of days. Yes, for sure. And I made up my mind 100% with my daughter, and I'm going to go back to China at least three, four times a year, if not more, because I can't believe when I walk in the streets skyscraper after skyscraper after skyscraper so much it's mind-boggling like five manhattans unbelievable do you mind if we speak with your daughter for just two minutes be interesting to hear what she thinks of the trip is that right with you libra hi there sure her name is libra like the sign okay yeah it's a place that i heard of from my grandparents who have now passed away my whole life 
And it was really emotional to me, for me to, to come here. It was my first time just because I'd heard so many stories about Shanghai being the place that allowed the Jewish families to come in when no other countries would, would allow the Jews in at the time. So, you know, I was always very grateful to the Shanghai people for, you know, basically saving our family. Your dad is talking about how wonderful it is that it's become this modern city. But I, I wonder if, if you're disappointed at all and that you couldn't see a little bit more of the traditional city that your dad saw the, and well, the old we, synagogues and things like that. You know, it has become westernized. And I think for me, that's always a little bit sad that any place with such a rich heritage is becoming westernized. I don't know if other people share that sentiment, but, you know, I like seeing the original cultures and the heritage of a place. Libra and Peter Max speaking to us from Shanghai, the answer to today's GeoQuiz. Now, if you're scared of heights, you may get a little freaked out listening to what the world's Marco Werman is about to tell you. But trust me, you'll be fine. Felix Baumgartner, an Austrian, is going to try to break the world height record for skydiving this coming Sunday or Monday. He'll rise up into the sky in a balloon to 23 miles high. 23 miles, that's the edge of space. And then he'll jump out of the gondola. As you probably heard, Baumgartner was going to try earlier this week, but heavy winds made him scrub his mission. So earlier today, I was looking at the Red Bull website. Red Bull is sponsoring Baumgartner's jump. And they point out that Baumgartner and his team have gone over all the possibilities of what could go wrong. What could go wrong? Well, plenty. Another website I was checking out had a story by an aerospace historian named Gregory Kennedy. And this tale will give you white knuckles. It was about Joseph Kittinger. He's the Air Force pilot who holds the current height record for skydiving, 102,800 feet set in 1960. But leading up to that record-setting jump, Kittinger attempted two other lower-altitude jumps. The first jump was a whole bowl of wrong. When he jumped at 76,000-some-odd feet, Kittinger accidentally released the pilot chute. If you've seen a parachute, there's a tiny chute or pilot chute that draws the larger parachute out of its pack. So with Kittinger, that pilot chute, way up there in the thin air at 76,000 feet, all it does is flap around in the wind, then wraps around Kittinger's neck and starts spinning him around like mad. Then he blacks out. Yes, he falls unconscious at somewhere above 50,000 feet and doesn't come to until he's a 1,000 feet above the ground, shakes himself too, and gets out the main parachute just in time. Felix Baumgartner knows that story well. Kittinger is an advisor on his team. And if you want to see how Baumgartner's upcoming jump goes, he'll have cameras strapped all over his body so you can watch the 23-mile freefall. Oh, and if you want to see the old newsreel of Kittinger's jump, we've got that at theworld.org. By the way, watch the whole thing to the very end and tell me if you see the same thing I saw. I'll give you a clue. Kittinger would fall 19 miles for a camel. Tell Marco what you see on Twitter. He tweets at Marco Werman. You're listening to PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Aaron Schachter. The 50th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis is coming up. Ahead, what it was like from the Soviet Union's perspective. There is surprisingly, stunningly little thinking on the Soviet side about what happens if the United States responds in an aggressive way. 
PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. How a president handles a foreign policy crisis is always fodder for political debate. It was last night as the vice presidential candidates traded barbs over President Obama's handling of the attack in Libya that killed a U.S. ambassador. Fifty years ago, it was President Kennedy who was put to the test by the Cuban Missile Crisis and the threat of nuclear war. After a terrifying 13-day standoff, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev finally agreed to withdraw his missiles from Cuba. But documents from the Soviet side suggest the crisis was longer and more dangerous than American officials realized. Reporter Bridget McCarthy has the story. On October 16, 1962, President John F. Kennedy learned from U.S. aerial surveillance that the Soviet Union was installing offensive nuclear missile sites in Cuba. He was stunned. President Kennedy broke the news on October 22nd. This sudden, clandestine decision to station strategic weapons for the first time outside of Soviet soil is a deliberately provocative and unjustified change in the status quo, which cannot be accepted by this country. President Kennedy announced the imposition of a naval blockade around Cuba. He also gave Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev an ultimatum. I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to haul and eliminate this clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat to world peace. In other words, remove those missiles in Cuba, or else. So why did Nikita Khrushchev risk World War III by putting nuclear missiles in Cuba? That's the question that everybody is trying to solve. Svetlana Savranskaya is the editor of a new book, The Soviet Cuban Missile Crisis. I spoke to her outside her office at the National Security Archive in downtown Washington. There is surprisingly, stunningly little thinking on the Soviet side about what happens if the United States responds in a aggressive way. Perhaps because the United States had deployed nuclear missiles in Turkey. Right along the Soviet borders, and that was a constant source of humiliation. So Khrushchev figured he had every right to do the same thing. Khrushchev felt, you know, this is giving the Americans a dose of their own medicine. That's James Hirschberg, a professor of history and international affairs at George Washington University. It's funny, when the crisis began in the secretly recorded conversations at one point, Kennedy reacted to what Khrushchev did and said, I'd say as if we started to deploy missiles in Turkey, that'd be goddamn dangerous. And his advisor, McGeorge Bundy, has to say, well, we did, Mr. President. Nikita Khrushchev's son, Sergei Khrushchev, is a historian at the Watson Institute for International Studies at Brown University. Sergei says as the leader of the world's other superpower, his father felt an obligation to protect his allies. And when Castro, after the of Peaks, declared officially that he joined the Soviet bloc. He put this obligation on my father's shoulders. So Khrushchev decided to send missiles there at the diplomatic signal. Don't invade Cuba. We are serious. Svetlana Savranskaya says in the spring and summer of 1962, the Soviets were receiving lots of intelligence that the United States was preparing another invasion. And Khrushchev doesn't want to lose Cuba. His most important ally, the ally that's genuine. Plus, it's Latin America. The Soviets don't have real allies in Latin America. 
Cuba is so, so important for the Soviets. The Cubans weren't just a valuable Cold War ally. They were genuine folk heroes in the Soviet Union. The Soviets were in love with the Cuban Revolution. It was really a love affair. They looked at Cuba and saw their own revolutionary youth. So all the Soviets, from the top to the bottom, wanted to help Cuba to fight against possible American invasion, American aggression. Unfortunately, Khrushchev nearly did provoke a full-scale U.S. invasion by sending the missiles to Cuba. And here's where the story gets really scary. Cuba was far more armed and dangerous than the U.S. realized. Svetlana Savranskaya of the National Security Archive says in October of 1962, there were 42,000 Soviet combat troops in Cuba. The U.S. didn't know about them. But that's not all. The Soviets had about 180 nuclear warheads on Cuba. The United States thought there were none. What we know now is, without doubt, that if there was an invasion of Cuba by U.S. land forces, there would be a nuclear response, and then the United States would have to respond with nuclear weapons. The crisis reached a boiling point on October 27th. Historian James Hirschberg. Clearly the night of October 27th. 1962 goes down as the most dangerous moment in human history. And it's dangerous, amazingly, not because what decisions the leaders are taking. It's because the situation is spiraling out of control. A Soviet commander in Cuba, acting without authorization from Moscow, shot down a U-2 spy plane over Cuba, killing the American pilot. Another American U-2 accidentally strayed into Soviet airspace in the Far East for a couple of hours. And also, by the 27th, we've learned, you had Soviet submarines around the blockade equipped with a nuclear torpedo each. In some cases, or at least one case, and, and the evidence is still coming in on this, arguments breaking out as to whether World War III had already started and they should use their nuclear torpedo rather than get sunk. The next day, October 28th, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev went on Radio Moscow. Premier Khrushchev has sent a message to President Kennedy today. The Soviet government has ordered the dismantling of weapons in Cuba, as well as their quaking and return to the Soviet Union. In return, President Kennedy promised not to invade Cuba. He also agreed to withdraw the U.S. nuclear missiles in Turkey. It was a compromise on both sides. Admittedly, the Soviets had to undo their major deployment. But to see it as one side giving up, I think, is incorrect. Both sides blinked. Americans thought the crisis was over. President Kennedy made it official by lifting the blockade on Cuba on November 20th, after receiving assurances from Khrushchev that he'd withdrawn all of his offensive weapons. In fact, he hadn't. George Washington University historian James Hirschberg. What we've only learned in the last 10 years or so is that the tactical nuclear weapons were still there. Svetlana Savranskaya of the National Security Archive says Khrushchev decided to leave these weapons in Cuba. And for some time during November, which we call the November crisis, the Soviet position was that they would train the Cubans to use the remaining weapons and transfer tactical nuclear weapons to the Cubans, which would have been the most dangerous situation. In other words, Cuba almost became a nuclear power. 
And had Kennedy discovered that after this incredible crisis, this incredible rupture in trust, that Khrushchev was lying again, the pressure to invade, to basically get rid of the threat permanently, would have been overwhelming. Khrushchev changed his mind and secretly withdrew the remaining weapons in December over the vigorous objections of Fidel Castro. There are lots of lessons from the Cuban Missile Crisis. But here's what President Kennedy's defense secretary, Robert McNamara, told filmmaker Errol Morris. This is from his award-winning documentary, The Fog of War. At the end, we lucked out. It was luck that prevented nuclear war. We came that close to nuclear war at the end. Rational individuals. Kennedy was rational. Khrushchev was rational. Castro was rational. Rational individuals came that close to total destruction of their societies. And that danger exists today. The major lesson of the Cuban Missile Crisis is this. The indefinite combination of human fallibility and nuclear weapons will destroy nations. But at least 50 years ago, it didn't. For The World, I'm Bridget McCarthy. Now, okay, here's how it works when we do celebrity chef interviews at The World. The publisher sends a cookbook to our newsroom, and one of us takes the book home and attempts to make at least one of the recipes. Makes sense, right? That's what I wanted to do before speaking with Swedish chef Magnus Nilsson. He shot straight into foodie stardom after his restaurant in rural Sweden, and we mean rural, Faviken, was proclaimed the most daring in the world by Bon Appetit magazine. Now he has a new cookbook out, also called Faviken, and I wanted to see what I could make from it. First step, a trip to a local Whole Foods to find the ingredients. Marketing team leader David Remillard tried to help me out, but it wasn't easy. We need marrow and heart with grated turnip and turnip leaves that have never seen the light of day. Very important. (laughs) Grilled bread and something called lovage salt. We need a very fresh cow's heart to start with and then a very fresh cow's femur. The marrow or the femur, we definitely can order for you. We can talk to our meat guy, our butcher, about the heart, uh, because I think we can also get that in for you. Uh, And what was the other things that you also needed? Uh, We need one turnip. That's easy enough. But that hasn't seen the light of day? That has stored in a cellar with its little yellow leaves that have started sprouting towards the end of winter. I have turnips. I have local turnips. I can't promise you, though, that they haven't seen the light of day. Should we uh, try and find our, our cow's heart and femur? Let's go. I'll take her over to the butcher. How you doing? Hi. How you doing? Mitch. Mitch Aaron. Nice yeah. to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. So, so we've come to you to find ingredients. You ready for this? Yep. Marrow and heart. Femur bones. We have them. We can get them in anytime you ask. I'm going to look to see if we can get some beef hearts in. I'll let you know if I can do that. What was the other one we had a little trouble with? Oh, you know, we needed a, we needed a retired dairy cow. A retired dairy cow? Yeah. Let me see if I have them in the back here. Let me give me one second. <laughs> no retired dairy no, cow. No, no retired dairy cow, sir. <laughs> we'll massage them too while they're growing. <laughs> you know what would be greatest? We could give them this jazz music. Oh yeah, massage. definitely. Headphones. Headphones. Nice. And then he's retired, and we can eat him. That was a butcher at Whole Foods, Robert Mitchell, helping me out with my shopping list. 
I am joined now by Swedish chef Magnus Nilsson, one of the top 10 chefs in Europe. Magnus, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, we poked a little fun there with that tape. Um, oh, that's great. <laughs> But um, as you could tell, it was a little hard to get ingredients uh, I th- I think you for did your pretty cookbook. well, actually. Really? Th- yeah, you found the at least you found the femur. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I had to order it though. It, it yeah. takes about ten days. <laughs> but a lot of your food takes time to cook, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And a lot of the food needs to be planned ahead in a long time in the restaurant as well. A year, one of the recipes, right? One of them uh, is probably a year. Yeah. I have to tell you, I, I was fully prepared to just make a complete joke out of this book. Um, (laughs) But the fact is, whether or not you can cook these meals, the book is absolutely stunning. That's very Um, nice to hear. Thank you. But who is the book for then? I mean, you know, um, some of the other celebrity chefs, Jamie Oliver comes to mind, make food that they hope people will go out and make. They will get the book on Tuesday and make the dinners on Wednesday. Yeah. That's not going to happen with your book. No, and that's probably not the idea either. From, from my part, the idea is that, you know, to write and produce this book and have people read it is all about sort of explaining the context of my restaurant, you know. Your restaurant, people, Favikan. Yeah, exactly. For people who haven't got the same cultural background as I have to kind of explain why it makes sense what we do up there. Yeah, I, I'm I'm looking through the book now, and as I said, it's it's very beautiful, very interesting, but a bit hard to understand the, this kind of food. <laughs> Tell me about what it is you do up there. In so I think Sweden. that, like, actually, if you look at on every chef anywhere, you know, the, the the most important thing that everyone makes in the kitchen is to to try to make the most out of whatever possibilities and difficulties you have in your situation, in your surroundings. You know, local food. You mean? Uh, no, not necessarily. You know, but you have to make the most out of whatever you have. Like, and for us, that's local food. We live in the countryside in northern parts of Sweden, uh, and that's something that works for us. You know, it, it makes sense. But if you're in a city, it might be something else. So. The, the restaurant seats about 12 people. It's very hard to get to. There's a great story at the beginning of the, the cookbook um, from a travel writer about him getting there. It sounds like uh, quite the trek. Is this sort of one of those restaurants out of James Bond or something where diners pay $1,000 each, all 12 of them, and get this fantastic meal? Uh, they don't pay quite $1,000 each, but it's definitely uh, it's a costly restaurant. Um and it has to be because it costs a lot of money to get those um, products in and to be able to prepare them the way we do. Now, uh, Magnus, uh, yesterday we asked listeners um, to send in questions to ask you, and uh, I'd like to read you a few if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. What time of year is best to visit Faviken? Well, it depends kind of what you like, you know. Uh, summer is probably the time of the year when we're most like most other restaurants. There's a lot of fresh vegetables, for example. There's a lot of things straight from the garden. Autumn, there's a lot of game, game birds, mushrooms, things like that. Winter is quite particular because everything we serve in terms of vegetables then has been stored or prepared in some way to keep. And then in spring, there's a lot of foraged food. So it depends mm-hmm. on what you like. That is uh, celebrity chef Magnus Nilsson, uh, voted by some one of the top 10 chefs in Europe. His restaurant, Faviken, one of the 50 best restaurants in the world, according to uh, the Wall Street Journal, I believe it was. <laughs> Uh, congratulations. Thank you uh, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And um, in about 10 days now, I, my cow's femur might be ready, and uh, maybe I can try a recipe from your book. Give me a call and tell me uh, how the cow's femur turned out. Okay, I will do. Good. You can see a slideshow of Magnus's restaurant at theworld.org and a video of him at work in his kitchen. This is PRI.
The World is supported by WGBH, producer of Nova. Explore the gap between the glamorous television world of CSI and the reality of the forensic crime lab with few established scientific standards, no central oversight, and poor regulation. Nova's Forensics on Trial, Wednesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. South Koreans don't normally watch movies from North Korea. In fact, they aren't really allowed to. South Korea's national security law bans any material deemed to be pro-Pyongyang. But this week at the Busan International Film Festival in South Korea, audiences got the chance to check out the North Korean flick Comrade Kim Goes Flying. Believe it or not, it's a romantic comedy. Jason Struther has more from Busan. The last time a North Korean film was shown here at the Busan Film Festival was 2003, but then only foreign visitors were allowed to enter the theater. That didn't happen this time. It was a packed house for the first showing of Comrade Kim Goes Flying. This movie is about a young North Korean coal miner who dreams of becoming an acrobat. Through sheer determination, support from her working-class community, and a few sports montages, Comrade Kim lands a spot in a circus trapeze troupe. Of course, she wins the heart of her handsome teammate, too. The film festival organizers got permission from Seoul to screen the movie. Lee Sang-yong, director of Busan's World Programming, says only government officials worry about pro-North Korean politics. The film does have some political content, he says. There's a scene where Comrade Kim gets words of encouragement attributed to Kim Jong-il. But South Korean people are not naive. We know the reality in North Korea. We can tell what is propaganda. It wasn't only North Koreans behind the film's creation. Belgian screenwriter Anya Delamans and British producer Nicholas Bonner oversaw much of Comrade Kim's production. Bonner has already made three documentaries in North Korea. He says scripting a romantic comedy came pretty naturally for the North Koreans. This is written by the North Koreans, the humor. There's a very obvious one, for example, with the, the doorman who refuses to let someone in who's trying to bribe his way in with a bread ticket. They wrote that. We didn't write that. Um, and then there's the sort of little nuances of the, the way, again, the couples act with their, uh, There's Instead of having kissing in North Korea, we've got hand-holding, and it's that wonderful passion that they show, you know, and the way that the audience picks up on that, that, hang on, this, there's a love story developing here. Bonner says audiences in South Korea got the jokes, too. Inside the theater, the audience laughed at the mostly slapstick humor, and they gave the film a big round of applause at the end. After the movie let out, I asked some in the theater what they thought of Comrade Kim. 22-year-old Kim Hyung-ryu said it was a nice change from the kinds of movies he usually sees. South Korean movies have a lot of complicated relationships between male and female characters, he says. But this North Korean film showed very simple, pure love. 57-year-old Gu Eun-sun says she came a long way to Busan just to see Comrade Kim, and it was a bit of a throwback for her. She says it reminded her of South Korean comedies from the 1960s. She's glad she had a chance to see the movie. 
The North Korean cast and crew most likely got to see the movie at the Pyongyang International Film Festival last month. They were invited to Busan too, but for whatever reason, they weren't able to make it. For the world, I'm Jason Struther in Busan, South Korea. And speaking of throwbacks, the Canadian band Rush is among the 2013 nominees for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Diehard Rush fans will no doubt discuss the nomination at the Rush Con, the Rush convention taking place this weekend in Toronto. Beverly Winches is on the phone. She is on her way to the convention. Beverly, you're also known as Rush Girl. You use it on email, Twitter, and even on your car license plate up there in Toronto. What makes Rush the number one band for you? You know what? First of all, it's the musicianship and the integrity. They've always done what they want, haven't conformed or jumped the shark. It was the lyrics that spoke to me and and the music that got me hooked, first thing. So for you, no doubt, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame all the way. Yeah, I think they should have been in there a long, long time ago. If you go by what makes entry into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, this is way long overdue. What's that when you say what makes entry? The influence that they've had on on other uh, musicians and, and other bands and the amount of records they've sold and just the musicianship is just, it's phenomenal. Now, um, I must admit I'm a fan of the band. I've been to two concerts. But, you know, since high school, I haven't really met a single woman who uh, who is a Rush fan. It's kind of considered a guy band, isn't it? Yeah, they have been in the past, but um, we're coming out in droves now. There's a lot more female fans that have discovered the brilliance of them. And uh, I remember when I first saw them, I was one of very few. And the other women that were there, or girls at the time because I was 12, were dragged there by their boyfriends. But I think now they've got way more legions of female fans than ever. Now, uh, Rush has diehard fans around the world, and as you say, they've sold uh, a few albums. But there seems to be a special connection between Rush and their fans up there in Canada. Obviously, that has something to do with them being a Canadian band. But is there something more, do you think? Is there some kind of Canadian connection we're missing down here? Canadians are fiercely, fiercely loyal people of their country and of what we produce out of our country. And Rush is probably the biggest band to come out of our country. And, you know, they go hand-in-hand with Hockey and Tim Hortons. Everybody who's a Canadian knows who Rush is. I don't think most Americans know what Tim Hortons is. Oh, Tim Hortons would be the best coffee in the entire world. It's the Dunkin' Donuts of Canada. Exactly. It's the Dunkin' Donuts of Canada. or, Or Starbucks, one of the two. Exactly. Now, as I mentioned, um, there is a Rush convention taking place this weekend. You are on your way there. What happens at a Rush convention? We get to talk about Rush nonstop without people rolling their eyes and looking at us like we have three heads. There's a tribute band playing on Saturday night. There's games and prizes, and um, there's guest speakers. This guest speaker that happens to be this year is John Aerosmith, their pyrotechnician and photographer. It's an excellent place to come and gather with fellow fans and love all things Rush. All right. Beverly Winches, otherwise known as Rush Girl, on her way to Rush Con, the Rush convention taking place this weekend in Toronto. Uh, Beverly, good to speak with you. You too, Aaron. Thank you. By the way, world producer Andrea Crossan's very first concert was a Rush show in Vancouver. She's been taking a lot of flack for that today in the office. She blogs about it at theworld.org. 
We've also been having some fun on Twitter with the hashtag MyFirstConcert. What was the first concert you went to? Tweet about it, and don't forget to add the hashtag MyFirstConcert. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Aaron Schachter at World Aaron. Have a great weekend. is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.